this morning I was attacked by the kids on the, in the hallway. Uh, first time that's happened here. Um, with, to my surprise, they all just slapped name tags on me. And, and I'm like, I know who I am. But they were expressing their gratitude, uh, so thank you. Um, I did take them, take them off my shirt. Uh, I know that my daughter is somewhere here looking, oh, thank God. But I have them in my Bible. Amen. So they're, 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 they're going to be with me now for, for quite a while. Amen. So thank you. This morning I want to bring to you a message um, simple. Jesus makes things simple. If you don't believe that, go read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about that today. But more specifically, I want to start thinking, I mean, last week we started talking about the body of Christ as how we conduct things, and we're going to start taking, uh, we're going to conduct a survey here, uh, not the one I mentioned at the beginning of church, but we're going to conduct a survey to see where we stack up in terms of our health, church health, that is. Are we doing things good? Well, I should say. Are we providing good care, pastoral care, ministry? Are we, is our worship times inspiring or not? Because it's going to tell us if we're doing good, and it's going to tell us if we're not doing so well. One of the things that I want to, that we are going to start looking at is worship. Along, which is one of the eight, uh, they call it minimum factors. So this morning I want to I address, start addressing some of the, the things about worship. And it may surprise you that worship is not necessarily something that is prescribed in the Bible. You don't have an order of service per se, uh, or you will not find a Thou shalt do this Sabbath mornings. You won't find that at church. You won't find that in the Bible anywhere. So what is the essence of worship? And that's what we're kind of going to start looking at uh, this morning. So Jesus makes things simple. And I want to start off by sharing with you this picturesque vision of a view. Do any of you here recognize this uh, we have a few okay this is located in the state of new york i'm going to give you a date and some of you may connect the dots october 22nd 1844 yeah and so this is ascension rock this is the place where the early adventists met I, sh- I shouldn't even say early adventists because they were actually millerites they weren't adventists yet they were millerites okay because they believed that they that jesus was coming on october 22nd 1844 
we have learned, and, 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 and obviously we're here because Jesus did not come, but we have learned that the date was right, but the event was not. I'm not going to get into that. That's a, that's a topic for another sermon. But I want to share this with you because I remember at, in college, right after I graduated high school, I joined the college basketball team at Atlantic Union College, and one of the things, the very first games that was on our schedule was called the, the tip-off Green Mountain Classic in Vermont. And so what happened, we had to meet in front of the gym on, on Sabbath morning. I think it was like 6 o'clock in the morning. Well, we all jumped into all the 16 passenger vans back then they were allowed. And so we made our way to this place. We, went to, we visited the, the SDA church in Rutland, uh, Vermont. And then after church, we went to Ascension Rock as a team. And then we, we, we kind of talked about what happened there. And then from there, we went to William Miller's uh, gravesite. You know, Seventh-day Adventists don't really visit gravesites. It's not part of the culture. That doesn't mean it's wrong. But then somebody said that Ellen White mentions that there are angels watching over the tomb. I had never read that before. I had never heard that before. So I found the quote. It's in early writings, page 258, paragraph 2. And she says, But angels watch the precious dust of the servant, and he will come forth in the, in the sound of the last trump. Typo. There are angels watching the tomb. When I heard this, I couldn't help but feel a supernatural power that was greater than me there. Now, I'm not... I don't believe in ghosts, at least not in the, in the sense that the world does, okay? And I don't believe that, this, that, that, that there was this spirit hovering over there, kind of watching. I believe there were angels. And if you have ever been in the presence of angels, you will understand what that feeling is like. And when I heard this, I'm like, this is really cool. And I... And, and, as we left that place, I began to think about what it meant to worship because it was one of the most beautiful Sabbaths I had ever spent. I wasn't with family. I wasn't married then. I was with a bunch of guys heading to a basketball game in the evening, but before the Sabbath was over, we stopped to worship. That was one of the most significant worship experiences I had ever experienced up until that time. I was 19 years old. It was also one of the very first experiences that I have had with the historical narrative of Adventism and to see it firsthand. I'd like to propose something to you just keep it in the, in the back of your, in your minds. I would love to organize a trip to the Northeast where if you have not had the experience to see some of these things, to see where our roots began, 
I think it would be a great place for you to visit. I don't know, food for thought. But that was one of the most inspiring worships I, or, or services or, or moments that, that I had encountered with, with, with God at that very moment in time. So when we talk about inspiring worship, what does it really mean? There was no band there, just a bunch of guys singing off-key with no instruments, no guitar. But I'll tell you what there was. There was an encounter with the Almighty. When you read the Bible... It says, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. You see, when we read the Bible, and, and, and open your Bibles, please. I'm not gonna, I don't have these words on the screen, but we have looked at this psalm before when we did our um, series on praise if you open your bible to psalm 150 it's a short psalm there's only six verses by the way the the verse the text that i read before is found in revelations 4 chapter 11 and we have and we have there the elders singing praises to God Almighty there in heaven. And here in, in, in Psalm chapter 100, verses 1 through 6, it says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Where are we? We're in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His, in his mighty firmament. Do you know what firmament means? Outside. You know, when God created the heavens and the earth, and He separated the waters from the firmament, in other words, a dry land, it means outside. So praise Him in, in church. Praise Him outside of church. Praise Him for His mighty acts. I don't think we need to translate that one. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. What has He done lately in your life? Praise Him with, sound, with the sound of the trumpet. We don't have a trumpet here. Anybody here plays a trumpet except my dad? He doesn't live here. Praise him with the lute and the harp. Praise him with a timbrel and dance. Mercy. Praise him with the stringed instruments and flutes. Praise him with the loud cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath Praise the Lord. Amen. Do you remember which word this one is? It's halal. It's the word that we get the word hallelujah from, right? It's the, it's the word that typically people say it in a loud voice. I have never heard somebody say this. When they hear something well that they want to scream out hallelujah, I don't ever hear them go like this. Hallelujah. It's always hallelujah. It's out. It's, it's, you're being clamorously foolish. You're being braggadocious on what God has done for you. 
Because you are inspired because of your encounter with the Almighty. I love the way that the Message Bible writes this verse. When they said, let's go to the house of God, my heart leapt for joy. How many of you got up this morning and said, I can't wait to go to church? Please don't raise your hands if you didn't. (laughs) But that's the context. I mean, think about it. When you talk about praise and and inspiring worship, in all of these contexts, it has nothing to do with what is being done here, but how it's being viewed there. It's what you bring to the table as the created versus what is being brought to you by the created you following it's not what how we come to church i've heard so many people oh i'm not going to go to church because that just doesn't do it for me or "I, i don't like that the way that that preacher speaks because he just doesn't move me or i'm not going to come to church because i'm too tired Sometimes that's a real legitimate reason. That's what the Sabbath is for. It's a day of rest. But when we come to church, and if we come with the mindset that I'm coming to church to be fed, that is the consequence, though, when you come with an attitude of praise. When you come with an attitude to encounter the Almighty, the result is that you will be blessed as you praise. Not the other way around. So when we talk about inspiring worship, and here is what the biblical writers all agree, it begins in the heart of the one who's coming to worship. In a form of attitude. So much so that... Ellen White talks about this as well. The prayers offered in public should be short and to the point. God does not require us to make the season of prayer tedious by lengthy petitions. A few minutes is long enough for the ordinary public petition. I timed Danielle's prayer this morning on purpose. She did not know. How long do you think her prayer was? A minute, two, four, three. Somebody's somebody's right. It was about three minutes, just over three minutes. Did it feel like it was long? If it did, I think you need to be praying a little bit more. But it's not about what we do here is what she's saying. It's not about us filling our prayers with eloquent words. Thank you. Eloquent words just to fill space. God wants us to be real. He wants us to be authentic. When we come to church, we need to be real and authentic with our Creator. And if you're having a bad day, tell Him. If If you had a great day, tell Him. You see, worship is not about what it can do for you. 
but it's how you come to it. There's another text in the Bible. And she says this. The prayers... Now I'm not going to read it. Because I'll just be re-emphasizing what I've just said. We need to be intentional. We need to be authentic. We need to be real. That's another word for it. And so much so that when Jesus came to earth, he struggled with his people. Did you know that there were over 613 laws by which they could say they needed to live by? When you sum up the whole Torah, which is the Pentateuch and, 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 and the, Bible, the Old Testament, there are 613 laws. 218 were affirmative. In other words, do this, right? And then they had 365 that were called negative laws. Thou shall not. In the Bible, we, we find, I mean, you have to really look at the thou shall nots. I mean, 365, can you remember there's a one law that you, per day, essentially, per year? It could be quite overbearing. But when, when you read what Jesus did and the responses he had to the questions that were posed on him, you begin to understand that Jesus isn't about self-glorification, but self-humiliation. Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapters 22, 37 through 40. As you get there, here's the context. In in chapter 22, verse 15, there's a showdown with Jesus and the Pharisees. They're trying to figure out where this guy's coming from. They're trying to figure out what does he really think. Is he with us? Is he for us? Or is he against us? Because they pose him a question like, hey, um, should we pay taxes? <laughs> There's some people who still think that today. Should we pay taxes? Right? I'm not going to get into that. But Jesus' response was, give me a coin. They gave him a coin. He says, whose face is stamped on this coin? He says, Caesar. Well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God. Done. Simple. You know what the Pharisees did? They walked away. The Sadducees then came along, and then they said, this is verses 23 through 33, and they said, hey, by the way, this woman was married to this gentleman, 
and then he dies, and she marries another one. He dies, and eventually this happens five times. When she gets to heaven, whose husband is she going to be? Is going to be her her husband? Who is she, who whose husband is she going to be the wife of? And Jesus, is like, there's not going to be any new weddings in heaven. I'm paraphrasing. Some, I've, I've been asked that question before. Well, pastor, are, are we not going to be married in heaven? Well, let's, let's look at this real quickly. When you take the marital vow, for those of you that are married or have been married, it's till death do you what? Till death. The moment somebody dies, done. Your marriage is over. I'm not trying to sound cold or insensitive. So if she marries five husbands, they all die, she's not going to marry anybody. She's not going to be betrothed to somebody in heaven. Her marriage is over. That's biblical. And they were like, oh, okay. And you know what they did? They walked away. They couldn't argue with him because it's so much so that the Bible says that the people who heard this, they were astounded at his authority, at, the, at how he taught them. The, the Pharisees hear about this again, and, they're like, and they come up with a plan. Well, we can't ask him these questions. Let's, let's try to entrap him. So they come up to Jesus, and here's where we find the context of Matthew 22, 37 through 40, is that so... Master, teacher, rabbi, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus, you know, I, w- I would have loved to be a fly on the wall. Because he's, he replies to them, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. Do you know that he's actually quoting Deuteronomy? He's, he's not saying anything new. He's repeating the actual law right back to the, the, the theologians of his time, the doctorates in the, in the laws. He said, don't you know this? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and with all your strength. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself in these two hinge all the laws and the prophets simple he he condensed the entire ten commandments in those two things and here here here, you know some people theologically believe that they they only stick to that but they forget that that's a reflection of the the ten commandments that's what god did that's what jesus did But Jesus doesn't end there. Because he's addressing the, 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 the core of the, is, the, the issue. Jesus is talking to these Pharisees who, who claim to know all of the theology of their time. But he's saying the point's not what you know here. That's important. But it's how you apply it in here. 
Because so much, if, if you go back to, to, to Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, it says, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, because my yoke is, my burden is light and my yoke is easy. Or my e- yoke is easy, my burden is light. The relationship with Christ is not burdensome. That's the struggle that the people were having. When you read the context, yes, you know, there, I've been asked to write a sermon on, on, on this text alone because you can take it in so many ways, but when you look at the focal point of the essence of Christianity, it's a relationship with Jesus that translates into a relationship with our, love, with our neighbors. But let's get back into this idea of, of worship, what it really means. So we, we understand that worship is, Jesus makes it simple, so our worship should be simple, should be authentic, it should be real. Let's jump back to the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 4, verse 1. I have this on the screen for you. In Leviticus chapter 4, you have here the very beginning of the Exodus. And so here, so the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he looked on the, on the affliction and then they bowed their heads and worshipped. Do you know that in the Hebrew, the, the phrase, they bowed, is not there? Because in the context, in the, in, in, in the concept of worship, it's one that you do that automatically. You bow your head in submission. That's why when you had the, 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 the story of, of Daniel's three friends in Daniel, where they go before the statue and they refuse to bow, it wasn't because bowing in of itself is wrong. I've taken Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and, and I know others here have taken some kind of martial arts. And we bow when we take the mat as a respect, not submission. In this context, it was bowing because of submission, because of worship, because you are rendering authority to something that is bigger than you. And so when you read a text like this, that they bowed their heads and worshiped, it is implied that the people recognizes who is sovereign in this context. It doesn't end there. Exodus chapter 12, verse 27, is the same thing. It's the same thing. Just fast forward. I don't have this on the screen. Just, just turn a few pages over. And it says there that, that you shall say it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the, the houses of the children of Israel. No, I'm reading the wrong chapter. 
chapter 12, verse 27. Yes, that is the right. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Who are they worshipping here? God. They're not worshipping Moses. Moses is actually telling them what's about to happen, what God is about to do them. And so they bow their heads. And so when, when you hear your song with our heads bowed, or when somebody says, will you please bow your heads, it's out of reference and out of you recognizing who your sovereign Lord is. But you know what? Recognizing who God is and understanding that you have to be authentic is only part of worship. Because in order for you to worship, you have to have an active part, part in it. That's why praise is something that you do from the inside out. I don't usually use Ellen White like this, but I'm going to today. The lifeless attitude of the worshipers in the house of God is one of the great reasons why ministry is not more productive. Go back one, please. The lifeless attitude. You know, if you come to church, let me rephrase that. If we come to church expecting to receive something when you don't con contribute to the worship service, that's what she defines as lifeless attitude. It is you expecting that you're going to be fed and that you, the, the whoever it is that this is speaking is going to speak precisely to your needs. That's selfish. That is not biblical. Because you don't come essentially to fill your cup. Your cup has got to be filled before you come so you can empty it before God. Lifeless attitude means that you are coming with an empty cup. And Jesus recognizes in the Pharisees so much so that he jumps to, when we look in, in Matthew chapter 23, we find this description that they are like, Fancy coffins with nothing but death inside. So when we talk about inspiring worship, we can, we can have a praise band that practices every week. We can have a, a pastor who writes a sermon for Sabbath. We can pray for the anointing of the Holy Spirit. But if all I'm seeing is fancy coffins, we're not moving forward. So we need to start looking at our, at our own hearts. See, before we move forward, before I even talk about what it is that we have to do or we should do about having inspiring worship services, we need to have a long self-reflection and looking ourselves in the mirror 
individually and say, what, do I, what am I bringing to the table? And I wanted to share this with you, not as an indictment, because I don't believe that you are fancy coffins with de- nothing but death inside. I believe that you guys have a story to tell. I believe each and every one of you have inspired, have been inspired by God at some moment in life, but yet you, you have not allowed Him to move in such a way that you come to church inspired. So when they invite you, your heart leaps for joy when, you, when, you, when they invite you to come to church. That's the environment I would love to have here. As a ministry team here, we can only do so much. We need, I need you to do your part. I need you to f- have your cup filled when you come through these doors so we can praise our Creator. Amen. And then I guarantee you, you will leave these doors inspired. Amen. You see, you can't be inspired with something you don't have. And you need to have your cup filled with God when you come to worship Him. You know, somebody once said, hey, so what's heaven going to be like? Are we going to be singing you know, all the time? Because the Bible says that these these elders, they, they worship him on these angels and worship God all the time. And I'm like, you know what? If you can't handle worshiping God all the time, maybe heaven's not for you. No, we're not going to have harps and fly and sing God all the time, but our life will be a life of worship. Amen. We are promised that we are going to be God's ambassadors to the other universes and explain to them what it's like to be saved by the Almighty Creator. Amen. But you can't do that if you don't have it in you. Mm -hmm. If He's not with you. If your cup is empty. So I invite you this morning. Look yourself in the mirror. You know, when I was in high school, there was a song that came out. And in, in, in the lyrics, it said, check yourself before you wreck yourself. We need to do that spiritually. Every single day. And I challenge you, every single day, check yourself before you wreck yourself. May God bless you.